Hi, welcome to the newest episode of The Adoption Files. This is your host, Andy Stanley. Joining me today is uh, Dr. Christy Howell. She is an adult adoptee in Reunion and a professor in sustainability. Thank you for being here with me today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I appreciate you volunteering to be one of my uh, victims. (laughs) Absolutely. Fire away. (laughs) Oh, I love your attitude. That's that's lovely. Thank you. (laughs) So now you grew up knowing that you were adopted. Absolutely. Knew it from as early as I can remember. Um, My parents had books uh, geared for young, young children, um, very young children, and read those to me as nighttime stories, you know, just before bed. Um, I can remember um, in some of them, some very 1970s sort of illustrations that uh, had captions like, just because you're adopted doesn't mean you don't have to eat your vegetables and, you know, things like that. And so, that that's one that really stuck with me. Um, and now I can't even think of the name now that I'm trying to remember it, but I do remember that particular illustration. And then there was another one of just because you're adopted doesn't mean you can sit too close to the TV. And so, you know, that was, that's probably some of my earliest memories of knowing that I was adopted came from those sorts of books. What a strange narrative. It's like they're anticipating that you are going to act out Mm -hmm. and they want to nip that in the bud. Absolutely. And, you know, as an adult reflecting on how that probably shaped my behavior as a child, um, I'm sort of shocked that I didn't rebel against it more than I did. I I don't think I did really. Um, Goodness, it was weird. It sounds like you were conditioned from a very young age to uh, stick with the program that you were being given. I, I would love if you ever remember the name of that book, because that's the first time I've heard that one. I I'll find that myself really alarming, like the socializing <laughs> that you're doing. It's, it's like they're teaching you not to act like a normal kid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, what would you tell another child? Just because you're our kid doesn't mean you can't eat your. Exactly. Okay. All right. So. You had some highly questionable by today's standards books read to you as a child (laughs) or by adoptee standards of any time, probably. And so you knew, and my follow-up question is usually, did it feel safe to ask questions? But after those books, I'm kind of, (laughs) I'm sort of nervous about even asking. So did you feel safe asking questions or voicing any kind of discontent or trauma? So I don't know. I can't pin um, when I explicitly felt unsafe. Um, I can say that I very rarely asked or vocalized any sort of curiosity. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't act on it though. So um, for me, I was always very, well, I guess if I'm going to be pejorative about it, um, I'd say that I was sneaky. Um, I don't 
think I don't think of it that way. I but I was very protective of the searching that I wanted to do and the way that I went about it. Um, and so that meant that you know, from a very young age, um, I knew where the file was, um, and I would go and read it, um, and I would put it back, and you know, not say anything. It, I would. I was very protective um, of this information that seemed um, sort of a cult, you know, like it, it was something that I wanted to keep to myself and protect and keep very secret. Um, and, and that took, a, that was a large part, not just of my childhood, but until fairly recently, um, you know, just talking about it was not something I did. Um, and that was probably until I was in my 20s. And, and started really looking um, for biological family. Well, I think what you're saying about not wanting to describe yourself as sneaky, I've heard that from other adoptees who also, I think that was the word that we were given as children for doing anything that might make our parents uncomfortable about us seeking out information. And not, you know, not just necessarily, because that also gets applied to um, you know, kept kids who want to read about sex or they want to know about, yeah, but I've heard that from other adoptees, <clears throat> excuse me, and I like what you say about it being protective. You were protective because I think you were kind of forced to be sneaky, which mm -hmm. was more simply the only avenue that you may have had available to you to obtain answers to questions that were very important to you and you didn't feel okay asking them of the adults who were present in that space. Absolutely. Um, I think too there's a component of I'm, I'm probably going to get this wrong. It may take me a second to say it the way I need to. There's a component of that being the information that I can control. That's the narrative I can control. Like, you know, as adoptees, we are um, not allowed control or agency over placement, over relinquishment, over, you know, so many parts of our past. And I think that for me, as someone who always knew, um, as opposed to someone who's a, an LDA, right, I saw ferreting out little tidbits of information and keeping them and cataloging them and those were my secrets. Those were my little pieces of myself that were mine. Um, and I, and I think that that was really sort of part and parcel of my childhood in, in sort of a similar way to, um, gosh, that awful kid, another awful children's book right here at the spy. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I, I mean, I remember reading that and thinking, like I, I kind of do this, but it's with my own history, right? It's not with other people's secrets or my opinions of others that are around me. It's with my own past. So I really sort of identified with that character um, in a weird sort of way, not in a, I'm going to go and write nasty secrets about my friends, but 
and I, I'm going to go and ferret out secrets about myself sort of way. It's that's funny. You're the third adoptee and and I'm a fourth one because I have a copy of Harriet the Spy mm -hmm. that I just bought for my grandkids <laughs> because I lost my copy because it was the same kind of thing like I was the person growing up that everybody could tell their secrets to because I valued like discretion like I absolutely yeah and I so that's so that's so funny that you are like there are four of us now who are just like yeah Harriet the spy we totally get that well so another weird pop culture moment so there's a line in the da Vinci Code um with the sir lee teabing the the maniacal sort of puppet master of the whole thing right he makes the comment to um the sophie Niveau character he says can you know a thing and never say it again and like i remember reading that passage in the book and thinking oh wow yeah uh-huh like is that weird? Does that mean I get to be a guardian of the Holy Grail because I can know a thing and never say it again? Yeah, no, that is really, that's interesting. Because I, I it's part and parcel of, is like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, why? I think it's part of our compartmentalization, right? The way that we stick stuff in a box and we know we can't talk about it. But we find ways around, you know, I tell people adoptee mm -hmm. silence is an extremely real phenomenon. Mm -hmm. We don't often feel safe talking to anyone other than other adoptees. And if, even then we have to be selective. Absolutely. About the other, you know, where are those adoptees in their process of kind of deconstructing their adoptee experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do I feel, and just because trust is such a huge issue for us as well. So I like how Absolutely. your eyes got bigger. If you could see her, everyone, her eyes got bigger. It's like trust. Oh. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> so, so you began finding ways to seek out information about yourself. And you told me the most amazing story when we spoke earlier about one of the ways that manifested would you mind sharing with everyone about your your duplicity my phone calls your phone calls my yes. phone calls okay so as a gosh i was probably not i was no i was not a teenager i was a preteen these probably started when i was maybe 10 or 11. um i thought i knew where i was born um so i thought i knew the hospital and so I would call the hospital at 10 or 11, mind you, and put on my best grown-up voice. And I would say, you know, my name is my adopted mother's name, and I am calling to find out information about my daughter, Christy. You know, what can you tell me about her? And so I would call with this like long drawn out sort of scripted thing that I would labor over for hours before um, going in and, and making the phone call and, you know, they would usually pick up, obviously these are bright adults, right? They would pick up pretty quickly that I was not the person I was pretending to be. Um, but after 
and I was thinking about this the other day after we talked, the part that I didn't mention was that after several times, I think I must have gotten to the same poor woman, like bless her heart that she was having to answer the phone and, and getting this rando nutty 10 year old. Um, and, you know, so I would get the same person and she'd be like, um, Ms. Howe, <laughs> we know that you're not who you say you are. <laughs> and, you know, I would sort of get corrected. And then there did come a time, and I'd forgotten about this until we talked about it the other day too, that um, my dad asked why there were so many long distance calls because it, it's just a, a county south of us uh, where I grew up. But I remember, um, you know, eventually having to explain that, and I, I probably made up some absurd story. Um, I don't even remember the, my response. What I remember is my dad walking in with the phone bill. Um, clearly my brain has protected me from whatever random thing came out of my mouth. Um, but I never called again and, um, you know, realized pretty quickly that I was not going to get anything out of the hospital, but that was a, that was a pretty common occurrence for me for probably about a year and a half. You know, I wouldn't call like every day or anything, but I call every few months hoping that I would get a different person who could tell me something about myself and, you know, constantly being thwarted and, and super angry and frustrated about it. So yeah, that's my childish duplicity. Um, don't be like me, kids. You know, like, well, <laughs> you're not going to fool the adults, right? <laughs> so, but that's so heartbreaking that you felt reduced to doing that. And I just can't, I can't imagine how anybody could hear that and think like, no, keeping secrets makes, that's protecting the kid. It totally makes sense. We right? Yeah. And then to become an adult. And like you said, you thought you knew where you had been born mm -hmm. and to become an adult and realize you subjected yourself to that only to discover that your place of birth on, on your amended certificate well, my place of birth on my amended certificate is a P.O. box. Um, so, and so I thought I had been born in one coastal hospital. Um, and because that was like part of the story, right? We all have our, I guess, kept people have their birth stories. And we yeah. have our adoption stories. You know, they go to the agency and pick up a kid story. And so, um, you know, mine included a hospital on the coast and that was part of my narrative um and it included so my my mom and dad you know tell it tell the story forever they I can remember them telling my husband this story that I had this particular fascination with the word Pascagoula which is a coastal town um and that the narrative was always that I'd been born in Pascagoula um, and they thought it was very endearing that I had a thing for the word Pascagoula. And I would like to say it as a five-year-old constantly, um, apparently, very annoyingly, you know, as five, four and five-year-olds do. Um, and so that was all sort of part and partial of the story, too. You were born in Pascagoula. You like to say the word Pascagoula. This is all very sweet, right? And so then I find out 
um, you know, in my twenties, um, when I did start looking that, that I indeed was not born in Pascagoula and that, uh, you know, and they felt completely okay about telling you this, you know, I think sometimes I know as a late discovery person, lies were just part of the package, you know, yeah. I mean, in fact, where I was born is one of the few things that they actually told me the truth about. So the you know and then I talked to people who knew growing up and I realized there are still so many similarities you know so many intersections between late discovery people's stories because there are still all these lies yeah and and your 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 birth certificate has a post office box on it so it's very difficult to not assign a pretty shady motivation to lying to you. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's easier for me now that I've seen my full rec packet of records. Um, and I don't know, I'll say this and then it'll probably sound like rationalization when I say it. Maybe, maybe I need to think about that. Um, but I think for me, the agency, if I'm going to assign fault, right, I think the agency and the state are potentially more at fault than my parents were um, in, in this particular passel of lies, right? Yeah. Um, because my packet of information um, just says the hospital system name and doesn't say which hospital within the system. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the assumption was made that it was the main one. Um, but then, you know, this, the way that the state manages records in Mississippi is Byzantine and nightmarish at best. Um, and so like the reflection there of the, the post office box, it was my parents' mailing address. That makes sense too, in a weird warped sort of way. Um, it's not right. It's, but I can understand how the rationalization has been made through the years. I, do yeah. I still think I deserve to know the accurate information about when and where I was born? As a historian, absolutely. Like, but I understand, I understand the duplicity in the system. Well, and I think <laughs> that that's, I mean, that's a good thing to acknowledge. I, I don't think everyone goes into adoption with you know nefarious motivation mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of rationalizations and justifications that are made yep. and some of them I can look at and go okay I don't like it but I get it yeah and then and because I have a history background and you're a historian we know how much history shapes those mm -hmm. narratives and the rationalizations and justifications that people make mm -hmm. so so you were born and adopted in the state of mississippi mm -hmm. okay which is a horrible state for adoptees absolutely yeah we we're nobody <laughs> i you know you sent me the link which is uh -huh. actually a site that i I use quite frequently. If anyone mm -hmm. has not heard of this, it's adopterightslaw.com. Uh, the attorney Greg Luce tracks the laws regarding adoptee access to 
original documents for each of the states. Mm -hmm. It's a great resource, um, especially as a starting off point. Right. You can jump from there. He includes the links to the actual legislation. You can go from there and read. Uh, you can also, if depend, you know, if you're out there and you're thinking about applying for your docs, you can type in adopt the access to original documents and then your state name into Google. And that's another way that you can start educating yourself on what your options may be. I would also add, as someone who's moved around within the states a little bit, it's a it's a really good resource to find out if you've moved, um, what local adoptee access looks like, and if there are places and spaces, if you have an activist heart and soul, where you can really get involved in conversations um, in new places, if that's something that interests you, um, you know, when you move to a new state and register to vote there. Please proceed. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. Because that is the kind of information we include in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Because we know that while we may have some other adoptees from Mississippi who listen to this, and I hope we do, we also, you know, have people from other states, other countries, mm -hmm. you know, as an international adoptee, it was interesting finding out what the laws were while living in a different country. So the one thing that I definitely discovered is that there is no universal regulation regarding mm -hmm. adoption. So if you listen to a podcast like this or another, or you read a blog that talks about laws, you need to come into it knowing that just because the laws are a certain way in Mississippi does mm -hmm. not mean that they're the same in Colorado or right. in India or Venezuela or right. anywhere, you know, in some places from county to county, right. the laws are different. So mm -hmm. you really do, unfortunately, as an adoptee, have to either learn how to do research or engage with somebody who can help mm -hmm. with the research. And I'll include some information about what's, you know, search angels, DNA, mm -hmm. detectives, mm -hmm. things like that, because it's not simple for adoptees to obtain our records exactly in, in most places. So you started calling around, you started sneaking in and grabbing your file and taking a look at it. I think you said you had it basically memorized at right. one point. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then you had already decided from a pretty young age that you wanted to find out as much as you could about mm -hmm. your okay so how did you learn about the laws in the state of Mississippi oh gosh um so I think I must have I think that's that is how I did it. Okay. So I had not really, I hadn't thought of this in a long time either. Wow. So, um, I grew up on college campuses. So, um, my family full chock full of educators on both sides of the family. And I was at an uncle or a cousin's office um, you know, just sort of hanging out, chilling, 
and asked to go to the library. And it was an institution that had a law library, um, you know, attached to the regular academic library. And I, that was, I remember that was the first time like I ever did a LexisNexis search on, on what pertained to adoption in Mississippi and what laws pertain to my access. Um, and I, like, I remember sitting in front of that computer terminal, just sort of noodling around, not really knowing what to look for. And this would have been in the 90s. Um, and, you know, so it's a black screen with green type and, you know, imagine all of the things that you can think of for late 80s, early 90s technology. And it was probably in that image, right, of me sitting in a library. Um, but going over and poking around a little bit and finding out that I didn't have access to anything in Mississippi, that I could only get my non-ID. And that's the first time I, I determined, or I, you know, the first time I ever remember reading non-ID versus ID. Mm -hmm. um, and realizing that I could get my non-identifying information pretty handily. Um, and it would have been not too long after that. I think I was still in high school um, when I wrote, what's the records request, people? Like the vital, vital yeah. statistics? And no, not them. The ones where they have like the, the records, they maintain like, like a confidential record. intermediary sort of situation. Every state calls it something different. Yep, and I'm and looking. Some of it, it's the Department of Family and Children's Services. Some it's, for me, it's the General Registry Office in mm. the UK. So uh, this is actually um, the, na it's a national. The archives? Mm -mm. It's the group that maintains um, adoption related International Soundex Reunion Registry. So the oh, ISSR, okay. ISRR. So I wrote to the ISRR, sorry, it just took me a second to, I should have had my notebook up on the other screen while we were talking. Um, but I wrote to them when I was still in high school, I was probably a junior or a senior in high school and you know, put on file everything that I could at that point, um, not really thinking that, that I should go and talk to the agency, right? Um, finally came around to this idea that I could just drive to the damn agency myself and walk in and ask for what I wanted. Um, and so I actually cut school. It's the only time um, I, I was that geek, right? It's the only time I ever cut school. Um, in high school was to drive 45 minutes to the Catholic diocese and walk in and say, hi, I want my stuff. Um, and at that point, they told me that I had to have approval from my parents to get it, which was a lie. Um, and I, I know that now. Um, I did not have to have approval. I was 18. Um, and so um, you know, not long after that, probably night right after I turned 19 is when I actually wrote the official registered letter and requested everything and got that first packet of non-identifying information you know that's 
something that I think we should spend a second on because mm -hmm. the state of Mississippi will not release any information to nope. an adoptee under the age of 21. Right. Not even non-identifying information. Nothing. Not a yeah, damn and, word. Yeah. And a lot of adoptees are not aware that if you know the name of the agency that placed you, mm -hmm. some, but not all agencies maintain records that they will allow the adoptee access to. I, and that is very agency dependent. You mm -hmm. know, you may be able to find something from one of the Salvation Army hospitals, if you were born in one in Texas, but you not, may not be able to find it from another uh, adoption agency in the same state. Right. You know, it just, it really depends. And the fact that Catholic Diocese was willing to give you that information prior to the date at which the state would have allowed you mm -hmm. is is actually really kind of amazing to me. Yeah. I, now, not identifying information for anyone listening who's not sure what that means, non-identifying information is information contained in a person's file that does not allow the adoptee to identify any of the individuals mentioned in the file. So this can extend not just from your birth parents, and I use that term, it, personally I say parents, but birth parents is the understood language. So that can extend to your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, any information in your file that you could look at and go, I could figure out who these people are. So you might get a paragraph of, of non-identifying information, you know, my your dad was 21, he had brown hair and green eyes. Your mom was 18 and she had blonde hair and blue eyes. They were both students. That could be it. Mm -hmm. Or you could get quite a bit of information. How much did Catholic, was so, it Catholic charities or Catholic? Social services. Social services. What so, did Catholic social services um, has a, they have to have stock in whiteout. Um, so there's, there's not a lot there. Um, there's, I basically ended up with, um, just little tidbits of information. Um, I knew that my biological mother's first name was Pam, um, that I knew that her middle initial was Y, which was very helpful, um, since it's not common, Right. And so got that, that she was in band, um, you know, just a few little things about her, um, that she had family members with high blood pressure, you know, a little bit about medical history, um, that everybody apparently had hay fever. Thanks, Pam. Um, it was just little sort of bits and pieces. Um, I did not get, well, they gave me an age, you know, I'm looking at the document. They gave me an age um and a partial birth date <laughs> but not a full birth date um a little bit about uh hobbies and and things like that her height um basic basic physical characteristics um and that's it 
Um, a tiny bit about my biological mother's parents um, and their grandparents, their parents, um, not anything, you know, especially descriptive, um, like they're alive, that's it. Um, th their religion is always listed, their race is always listed, um, but that's about it. Like there's, there's not a lot there. So, you know, what I end up knowing at the end of that first bit of non-ID is her name's Pam, her middle initial is Y, she was 15 in 1980, and she was in the band. Well, oh, and, I, and then by that point, I also knew the correct location of the hospital where I was born, um, rather than the broader system name. I knew that, was it, that it was a hospital um, in, a, in a small coastal town called Ocean Springs. And so, you know, by that point, I, I know enough that as any decent historian would, right, I start going to high school annuals. Um, and I don't know if you want me to go into that part yet. So I'll pause there and let you ask any further questions that you had. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that's okay. I find people's process fascinating, <laughs> you know, because I've had people laugh when I talk about requesting you know high school and college annuals to look for information and yet there is so much that can be found and the fact that you now know where you were born you know people a lot of younger people who've moved a lot or who have grown up in large communities mm -hmm. don't understand that when you're looking at small communities mm -hmm. or if you're looking at a time period when people did not move around as much. If you are approaching your search, looking at a small town or an area like that, yeah. like for me, where my maternal family is from, they didn't move much. Mm -hmm. There's still hundreds of them, mm -hmm. you know, within 15 minutes of where my mother and grandmother were born. Mm -hmm. So you can use that information to find out a lot more than people like for me and for you you probably would look at what you're getting in your non-id and going well they shouldn't have given me this information right <laughs> like know? that's sort of the way i approached it and i'll i mean i'll this is going to sound terrible it's actually it's going to sound very petty but um you know, for me by that point i was so angry i was so mad that's not petty that they would give me this document that's just covered in whiteout. I mean, I, I developed sort of this pathological aversion to whiteout, thanks to the Catholic Social Services of Biloxi. Um, but every little bit that I was able to assemble together into another fact that I could independently confirm, it would just give me this rush of adrenaline, like, you bastards, you thought I couldn't figure this out? What's wrong yeah. with you? I'm not stupid. We're perpetual you know? infants. I mean, they still refer to yeah. us as the adopted child. The child. Yeah, I'm in my 50s. I'm not right. so and and I think I I now refer to that anger as moral outrage. Absolutely. 
you know? Absolutely. Because it's, why should they possess all this information about you mm-hmm. and then have the right to just X out whatever they feel like? Exactly. Yeah. Like this, this isn't about you, sister, whoever, like this is my information step back for a second and I think too you know, by the time that I started coming up with with actual people you know and started pulling together enough information that I had a handful of potential candidates um, for a biological mother person um and, you know started finding out where she was and where she had been and you know, all of those things by that point I was also I won't say savvy because I definitely wasn't savvy by the end but I was experienced enough in the archives and I'd spent enough time in the archives as as a student historian to understand that there are people long dead and gone whose narratives are better fleshed out in a dusty archive than my narrative was. And like, for me, that was, that was a deeply personal affront, right? That, that there are people who died centuries ago about whom, and they're, they're not, you know, famous people. They're just regular Joes um, who had better fleshed out personal histories than I did that really sort of aided me oh for a little while I get it I mean I'm just gonna reveal what a nerd I am like there are we know more about Sumerian shopkeepers yep and their daily business transactions than we do about our own histories as adoptees it's bullshit yeah absolutely yeah and and somehow the denial of that information to us is to protect somebody who's obviously not us like yeah you know in the state of mississippi if one biological parent reveals the the identity of the other biological parent the one who does the revealing can be charged with a misdemeanor and that's where we talk about the laws about mississippi i it's ridiculous i'm sorry i didn't make that was a beautiful segue it was not planned that was very well done i just i was reviewing the laws and i was thinking about that i was thinking you know tennessee is going to be changing their Mm -hmm. law because they've had a contract that adoptees had to sign Mm -hmm. And they had to agree not to seek out their family or it was a crime. Right. Mississippi for one parent. And let's just hypothetically say that the information on most adoptees original birth certificates is going to be their mother's name. So let's hypothetically say that we are protecting the patriarchy by... Mm -hmm making it a crime for a mother to identify a child's father to their child. Absolutely. And what does that say about the power differential between Mm -hmm. men and women and between an adult adoptee, an adult, Mm -hmm. you're an adult. Yes. (laughs) So, so Mississippi does not allow open access to adoptees for their Mm -hmm birth certificates you must be 
21 mm -hmm. in order to even request your non-identifying information mm -hmm. and to apply to receive your identifying information. Mm -hmm. uh, adoptees parents may at any point including up to the day they receive notification that the adoptee is looking for them mm -hmm. they can file an affidavit denying that the information be re released right and any licensed agency is only allowed to contact them that one time and if, they, if they know then they won't do it for you again, and they will not release the mm -hmm. information to you, mm -hmm. which is just mind-boggling to me. It's it is, yeah. It's like you. It, I mean, fifty-six. Yeah, and and the other thing too is if they can't find your parent, it's like, oh well. Super sorry about that. We're not going to yeah. release the information to you. And then I believe it's your burden if you discover, and in this case, you have to know who your parent is. Right. If you discover that they're dead, then it's on you to provide the documentation. Right. Yeah. So that you can get your own document, which right. by that point, you found out who they are. You just want to have that piece of paper. Right. And it's the absurdity right of this this weird convention and i know mississippi is not the only one but this weird convention that a biological parent has a right to privacy that extends for their entire life yeah that and that supersedes my adult right to an accurate legal document to a medical history to a cultural background to any of the things that we think of as basic human rights that are inherently part of the way that we define our existence yeah but they're they didn't get a right to privacy when they signed relinquishment papers for me like that's not the way this works and in in my case, um, you know, my biological mother disclosed, and after I got my identifying information, I saw this in her own hand, it disclosed that she did not know who my biological father was. Um, and, you know, in the day and age of, and I'm sure we'll get to this, but in the day and age of DNA, it's sort of like closing the barn door after all the horses have long escaped to pretend that any bullshit regulation about keeping people's privacy after they've signed away a kid 40 years ago is going to do any good at all because it's not well and there's a difference between privacy and anonymity you right know? i mean if you if i contact you as my parent and you say okay yeah i'm your parent but i don't want to have a relationship with you mm -hmm. i would prefer to remain private okay, you have a right to that privacy. Just yes. as I have a right to not have you contact me if a parent reaches out to an adoptee, because yep. that happens too. You know, yep. parents search for, find their adult adopted child and mm -hmm. you know, the, 
and they reach out, that adopted person has a right to say, I don't wish to be contacted. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. is a different issue. Precisely. And because our birth certificates are not revised until we are adopted, they, they can't make a promise nope. of anonymity. You know, I was in foster care for the first 13 months of my life. Mm-hmm. Granted, it was my, uh, my foster parents who ended up adopting me, mm-hmm. but my original birth certificate remained yeah. exactly my original birth certificate until yeah. 13 months after my birth. So there's no... You know, my, and my mother was not in the picture at that point. Yeah. So, so I actually have an OBC, uh, you know, as we all do. And then I have my ABC, but I was actually given a social security number under my OBC. And so, um, because no one wanted to pay for my medical care, they, they tried, um, and ultimately succeeded, um, to get some funds, out of Medicaid for my extensive medical care. I was incredibly premature. I was flown to Oshner. You know, there was a whole lot of medical stuff going on, um, which is why at the end of the day, my um, identifying information is 160 pages long. Um, So, and you know, my non-ID is 74. So... I think you have more paperwork than anybody that I've That's ridiculous. spoken with, but the medical aspect of it, mm-hmm. that makes, that makes sense. Yeah. There's that charts makes- and bills and, and like refusals of payment. And then people bitching about refusals of payment and cause nobody wanted to pay for me. Oh, that right? would be hard to look through. And- it's, it's kind of weird. Right. And yeah. it's, um, there's this realization that not only, and I mean, the, the statement may be triggering for some, so I'll issue like my own verbal content note. <laughs> like, not only was I not wanted as an infant or not wanted as a pregnancy, I should say, I was also not wanted as an infant and nobody cared enough about me to want to even pay for me. And so like, there's this sort of long string of refusal and you know, it's, it's kind of weird. Right. And it's taken me a long time to unpack that and to be able to even frame it with any sort of disconnection. Um, you know, it's, and that's years of therapy. Um, highly recommend to any adoptees who are listening, who are starting this process, try to get yourself into an adoption informed therapist. Um, and uh, you know, I, I wish that I'd done it sooner. It's the best gift I've given myself ever. Um, And we'll sing that the praises of that process and being able to unpack stuff and not feel like I'm imposing on friends who are adopted or not. Um, You know, that person is paid to listen to me freak out. It's kind of nice. Right. No, I, I I understand. It took me a lot of years to find somebody that I felt comfortable with. And and not everybody has unfortunately access mm-hmm. to therapy. So right. there are free yep. adoptee support groups that I would yep. encourage people. I think 
the the most important thing is if you haven't started the process of applying for and your papers and doing your search or if you're at some point in that process or post or wherever you are Mm -hmm. have a support system absolutely that includes adoptees yeah it's I, I can't fully articulate how freeing it is as an adoptee to talk to other adoptees. Yeah. Um, it's, it's profound. Um, and, and really that for me is what got me through the first search and reunion mm-hmm. was because I didn't, I didn't have funds for a therapist until, you know, very recently. So I completely understand that. Um, and, you know, but can also 110% endorse adoptee support groups, adoptee search angels, um, you know, the, the folks who make our lives a little bit more understandable aren't always going to be professionals in the field, right? And so there's so much value in creating that support group around you that can give you a safe space to lose it when you need to and and can help you pick it back up again. Yeah. And you're, and you really do need adoptees because Mm -hmm. as, as hard as non-adoptees may try or may think they Mm -hmm. understand, you simply can't, you can't understand someone else's lived experience you can try to educate yourself, but you can't understand. And you're going to come into it with unconscious biases because you've been inundated with them, mm-hmm. whether you're aware of it or not. Now, I do want to touch a little bit on, and this will become a little political, so people might get a little unhappy <laughs> with this, but so you were a very fragile, ill child with a lot of medical needs as an infant and this made you a very risky child for an adoptive person to bring into their home Mm -hmm. we know that right now we are looking at the beginning of a new era i think of forced adoptions as a result of people being forced to carry pregnancies to term Mm -hmm. and the language that SCOTUS put out quoted research from the CDC and from Amy Coney Barrett and their assertion that any child being born today Mm -hmm. will have no difficulty finding a suitable family to care for them that the Mm -hmm. demand for children is is higher than the supply and that the domestic supply of infants is inadequate to bring joy to the hearts of all of those hopeful adopted (laughs) people out there and what this completely fails to acknowledge is that the just the facts of it are that there are children who are considered unadoptable right and this label is not one that i 
just pulled out of the air. This is one that agencies have been using for decades. Decades. And these are often children who have significant physical challenges. I Mm -hmm. personally have seen a child abandoned at a school that I worked at Mm -hmm. because the people caring for this child decided they simply couldn't do it anymore Mm -hmm. and just refused to pick him up from school. Mm -hmm. So just keep in mind, if you're out there and you're thinking, this is such a great thing and all these kids will just be swept up into the arms of loving people, not true. True, right? (laughs) And And I think even taking that one step further, you know, my, my parents were very fortunate um, when they adopted me that they did have stable employment and good health insurance and all the other things that they needed in order to pay in what would be $2022, probably close to $80,000 um, to be able, in terms of agency fees um, to be able to even bring me home. And so there's, there's a vast amount of privilege that's involved in closed adoption. Um, you know, and I, I think we all probably know that we, we know it, but there's difference between knowing it and knowing it, knowing it. Right. And so seeing for me, seeing the canceled checks for my purchase, right. That's, that's different. Oh, oh yeah. I have receipts. And yes. So seeing the canceled checks, that's odd sort of in and of itself. But then the fact that they did have good enough insurance um, to be able to deal with me as a sickly um, eighth month old when, when they finally brought me home. um, That's an, you know, another set of concerns altogether um, that, that we as a, as a country don't do well right? We, we already don't really um, check all those boxes in terms of um, widespread health insurance, medical support, etc. The other thing that really bothers me um, within that particular footnote in, in the SCOTUS decision is this language around commodification. Mm-hmm. And, and when, we, when we use the language of commodification to refer without any irony, right? There's no irony in that footnote. And they're using the language of commodification to refer to human beings. That should give us all pause, right? Because I'm not a commodity to be traded on the open market from a seller to a buyer. Yeah. And when we use that language, whether we mean to or not, some part of us dehumanizes the party in the trade, dehumanizes the child. You know, we, we've already established that for so many of us, we are referred to as children throughout our adopted lives, or throughout our lives. Um, we are adopted children. Um, and we are, we are forever infantilized in that sense. And to further dehumanize us by referring to us as commodities is, 
it's deeply and profoundly troubling. Um, you know, as a as a historian, as a geek, as a word nerd, right? The words that we use matter, mm-hmm. and uh, I just caution us all as we embark on whatever this new chapter is going to be, um, to be very careful about the language that we we employ to talk about children as commodities. It's, it's, it's so incredibly troubling to me. I, I don't even really have the words to express how really uncomfortable and squidgy and, and nauseous, right? It makes me feel, um, it, it recalls so many different genocidal eras in our past, you know, when I, when I think of that language. So that's my, my big blanket warning. It really bothers me. Well, and I think it's something that people need to take seriously because on the one hand, it's actually sadly refreshing to have it spoken of in such an upfront, transparent fashion. Yep, because they dodged it for so long. Yeah, because as you said earlier, we're not stupid. So when you give us this polite language, this good adoption language, adoptees are looking at who's generating this language, the adoption industry and the pro-adoption advocacy groups are creating language and saying, this is the right way to talk about adoption, Mm -hmm. but they're doing it because they're attempting to continue to be a going concern. They're a business and they need to, like any good advertiser, employ psychology to persuade the market that they want this product and they want Mm -hmm. the producers of the product to continue Mm -hmm. trusting them with their goods Mm -hmm. and they want this to be perceived as this beautiful thing and so in some ways it's kind of refreshing to actually have them not be using this waffly language yeah yeah but you know at the same time the people try to change it to make themselves more comfortable with what's actually being discussed mm-hmm. does not change the issue from being problematic i mean in my opinion criminal it's right what it should be you know we outlawed mm-hmm. the owning of other people some time ago theoretically mm-hmm. and yet we're you know we've seen the perpetuation of it in you know children removed from indigenous communities right. from you know poverty stricken families yep. and and you know black families and mm-hmm. and the fact that you can google cheapest places to adopt right and they actually maintain lists and they're mm-hmm. 98% communities that are people of color. They're, you know, it's, it's appalling. And it absolutely is. And yeah, for me, um, you know, I, I now work in sustainability, my background's in history, but for me, that connection of the consistent long-term overwhelming denial of adoptee rights 
is it ties right back into you know major resolutions that we see on a global scale about human rights mm -hmm. you know and and the ways that um adoptees denial of equity before the law and um you know acknowledgement of of their human rights as citizens of the world as citizens of the united states as citizens of wherever like there there are layers upon layers of of problems and equity issues that are baked in to this system just like any other system of oppression right and so i think too that there are you know unique and curious and perhaps uncomfortable um ways <laughs> that um you know white supremacy you know other forms of supremacy and oppression inter intersect with the way that adoptees are treated and seen you know within our society especially in the us i know that this is also the case uh, in other parts of the world and, and particularly with international adoptees and you know awarding of citizenship on adoption and all the issues that don't happen there that should you know, there's so many different pieces um, that for me, ad adoptee rights really sort of encompass um, a broader understanding of what human rights should probably look like. I don't, and I don't know that I said that as well as I probably could have, but like that's something that often occurs to me as well. Yeah, and I think the cognitive dissonance that has to occur. Absolutely. Yeah, in order to separate well, adoption is different. No, yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> I know it isn't. Yeah. It's not. Uh, no, and I, I mean, that wasn't a response to you, but it's, we hear it so often, right? Because there's a reason that adoption, language around adoption often sounds like trafficking. Mm -hmm. Well, I think because it is. It's Absolutely. It's a gussied up form precisely trafficking you know that we slap a bunch of pretty labels on because again it's that advertising and, yep and we have a fairy tale narrative that we use around it that we would never employ to talk about trafficking no but it's there yeah no, it definitely is now and i'm and i did want to before we completely move on from the laws of mississippi i you had to go through 20 hours i think Mm -hmm. of therapy in order to receive your when you when you were able to apply to the state for your records you were when i was able to apply to the agency for my identifying okay. the agency required the counseling in order for me to be able to get those records done even though my biological mother at that point was willing to sign for me to get them she was willing to approve I had to go through counseling in order to get the file. Now, what did they tell you was the reason for that? They didn't really give me one. Not that I remember now, anyway. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it was really just sort of a check mark. Um, as I scroll back up through the letters here, I don't even know that I kept that one. I remember being so angry when I got it. Um, because mine said from the UK, mine says that you need to attend a counseling session in order to demonstrate that you are of sound mind. Mm. 
because that's what they ask everybody who wants a copy of their birth certificate, right? Right, of course. Yeah. Please mm-hmm. demonstrate that you are sane. Um, no, there's just, um, prior to release, you must demonstrate completion of, and then here's the contact information so you can set up your first appointment. And who conducted your therapy appointment? It was an assigned counselor from the diocese. Okay. So, so that and that was um it was it was awful. It was pretty terrible. Um it started with why do you want to hurt your parents? And really sort of went downhill from there, right? This there's this framing of searching as pathological. Mm-hmm. Um which you know, even then, as an undergrad um, in history, I found laughable, profanely laughable, and responded in kind. <laughs> um, I was I was not a good therapy candidate, um, not for that particular person anyway. And so, you know, they obviously came in with a very set agenda um, to convince me that what I wanted to do was bad and that it would hurt my mom and dad and that I would find things about myself that I didn't want to know. That was, that was a big thing that I remember, like, you're going to find out secrets that you don't want to, you really don't want to deal with. And there was always, oh, I've forgotten about that one too. Um, what if you find out that she was a prostitute or that she was a drug addict or, you know, whatever else. And I still remember the very first time that it occurred to me that, you know, that wouldn't be the worst thing. For me, what would have been the worst thing, I think it, it would have, I would have found it sadder to have been, you know, a second pregnancy that had been relinquished. Um, You know, that they were, I'd only been able to keep one of you or, you know, whatever, like something like that would have really bothered me. Um, but gosh, being 15, nah, dude, that makes perfect sense in a way, you know? And I think for me, I had to construct these store. And I guess we all have to do this, right? We have to construct these stories around the possibilities of our birth that allow us to go through life without always questioning or always mourning it or you know whatever I I think for me um one thing that that the forced therapy did was made me incredibly angry um that's when I I sort of put on my angry bastard hat um and and I don't know that I ever really took it off um it made me very averse to therapy generally um, gave me, gave me a really bad taste in my mouth, um, for any sort of, of therapy for anything, um, which starting therapy 20 years later with an adoption informed therapist, like we really had to unpack that first. Um, I think too, it made me compartmentalize even more because I, I felt then that um, searching was bad, bad. Like, 
just wrong, um, harmful to me, harmful to my family, harmful to like random strangers, like it would make them uncomfortable. Like I got this real sort of idea in my head that, that this process of looking for myself was just bad and it should never be done. See, and that was so unfair to you and it continues to be unfair because this is an attitude that we encounter on a on a daily basis if you talk about being adopted people do not in general want to hear about it and the fact that this was a professional right quote unquote mental health care worker who felt comfortable inflicting a narrative on you that denied you your agency invalidated Mm -hmm. you as a thinking adult instilled fear in you relied upon their particular social or religious perspectives to inform their questions Mm -hmm. that sounded more protective of the agency than of of you who this Mm -hmm. is supposed to be in the best interest of therapy should be in your best interest it should not be in the best interest of some adoption agency other party right and that it inflicted harm upon you that you then had to carry around with you for decades Mm -hmm. and that's one thing you know if you are an adoptee and you are thinking about going into a therapeutic setting again you know if you can find an adoptee even if you find an adoptee i strongly encourage adoptees as to remember you're interviewing the therapist as much as they're interviewing you exactly job application on their part Uh okay so you need to ask them and my therapist and i have talked about this you need to ask them how do you feel about adoption Uh don't tell them how you feel about adoption Mm -mm. ask them how do you feel about adoption how do you feel about adoptees looking for their yeah for searching Uh and applying for their documents and what is your background in treating early childhood trauma trauma and developmental trauma and you can tell a lot about the Mm -hmm. therapy's perspectives by asking them those questions and if they say to you i think adoption is wonderful stand up and leave leave that's a red flag yeah you know (laughs) like a big giant red flag those three questions should be able to give you the majority of the information you're going to need about Mm -hmm. whether you want to stay in that chair talking to that person you know well and for me you know i i even explicitly avoid talking about adoption in spaces where adoptive parents meet. yeah yeah i am um i just sort of refuse to um, I will screen a space. I will, I will outright ask, um, I've, I've been asked to talk about adoption and search with students, um, in the past, and I will explicitly screen a space for adoptive parents. And I will, I will say, you're welcome to stay, but I'd like for you to understand that there are going to be things that I talk about that you find particularly troubling and that you are not welcome to push yeah. back. Yeah, like I, I have to set really good boundaries. Um, I'm in a, in a community now that's um, very privileged and there's a lot of interracial adoption 
Um, and there's a lot of the adoption is savior narrative um, that's just all over the place um, where I live now. And I really have to be mindful and protective of my space, um, you know, if I ever embark on those conversations with people. So it's, um, it's absurd, right, that we have to police ourselves yeah that way it really is and it's it's interesting uh you know in, re in the last couple of years we've heard a lot about how some of the worst people are are the liberal white progressives mm -hmm. and that's true for adoption as well as it is for anti-racist yep faces and so you can go into a space where there are adopted parents and if they're coming from a religious background mm -hmm. as their reason for adopting you're you can be pretty certain of what you're going to confront absolutely in that space if but if there are liberal especially white progressive mm -hmm. adopters in that space mm -hmm. it can be some of the hardest people to talk to absolutely because they think they're so much better better because mm -hmm. they're so much more informed and they're so much right. more enlightened and they're so much mm -hmm. more open and yet i haven't i don't think i've encountered an adoptee yet who felt safe with those nope. adopted parents either nope and you know it's it's obviously true of online spaces where we can hide behind screens and keyboards but it's also true of face-to-face -face spaces um you know i've I've been called an ungrateful bastard many times. And I, I mean, I'll joke, I'll jokingly refer to myself in the same tone, but um, you know, when, when I'm called an ingrate by an adult yeah. who's standing in a space occupied by other adults in a, in a church basement, like that hits a little different. Right. And for me, uh, that reminder I often will start with for adoptive parents, adopters in the room, I'll say, the way you talk to me is the way you're going to talk to your children. Yeah. And you know, sometimes that gives people pause and makes them think about it for a second. But you know, I, I often encourage folks to reflect on how they will respond to their children when their children come to them. Um, with these questions. And if they say, my kid's not going to tell me, or my kid, my kid's not going to search. Our response is usually your kid probably doesn't trust you enough to tell you that they're searching. Yeah. And, it's and you know, we, we talked about this before, but when I started, you know, with memorizing the file and I could sneak it, um, you know, once I got into getting the identifying information and finding out um, possibilities and, and everything else. Um, my, my parents really sort of tried to take the search from me. I mean, we, we, be, I began to realize that there are, there are lots of connections in the community that my, my mom and dad probably knew. Um, and I had to really sit down and set boundaries. Um, and for adoptees who are listening, who are starting this process or who are somewhere in this process, um, you know, you may, you may want your spouse's help or you may want a parent's help, but don't be afraid 
to set the boundary of this has to be mine. You know, and for me, it had to be my work. It had to be, well, I mean, I could work with an angel. That's different. I, yeah. You know, I initiated that contact and that's, that's very different. Um, much as my file was what I had of myself, um, my search was what I could create of myself. And I didn't want others involved. I didn't want my parents involved in that. And so like, that was really hard for me to set that boundary um, and to not allow it to be controlled by my parents. I've, I, I work with adoptees um, now whose spouses took over their searches and whose spouses initiated searches and like that just makes my skin crawl sort of like we we're denied so much agency. Yeah. We have to stand up and claim at least some of it for ourselves. Yeah, that's very true. I, my adoptive mom, when my contact with my maternal family was not going well, mm -hmm. wanted to, she's like, well, let me talk to them you know, let me go, I'll go with you. Cause I've never met them. And she was like, I'll go with you or I'll go. And I had to say, no, I do not want mm -hmm. you in mm -hmm. touch with them. And if I ever do you know, before she dies, meet my mother, mm -hmm. I fully intend to do that on my own. Yeah. You know, I mean, if somebody, if I decide to bring someone with me, it will be, you stay in the hotel. Yeah. And I'm doing this on my own and they don't yes. understand it. And, but I agree. It's, there's so much that we've been told, you know, you can't do it or you're not able to do it, or we don't want you to do it. Or you, or we legally allowed. preclude you from doing yeah. it. Yeah. So I, I think, and sadly, what you said earlier about, uh, you know, they may not feel like they can tell you. I know adoptees. I know full-grown yep. yep. grandparent adoptees who have been in reunion or who found their families and requested their documents. They have their mm -hmm. docs or they got denied their docs mm -hmm. and did DNA years ago. And they yep. still have not told nope. their adoptive family and a lot yeah. of their friends either. Yeah, because like, those people are not capable of tolerating what they feel is threatening to them. Yes. And so these poor adoptees, we've lived our whole lives concealing so much of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then to be at this point where such a huge thing right. as obtaining our original documents or being the heartbreak of being turned down. Right. A whole roller coaster of, of reunion. Yep. And we, often reunion failure. Yep. And you we have to stuff it all in a box and pretend yes. like it doesn't exist. And then our and then to watch <laughs> our adoptive parents proclaim to the public that, oh, our child is so happy to have been adopted. And right. they think it was wonderful and they've never asked a question and they don't have uh -huh. any interest. You don't even know that person. No. My adoptive family doesn't know me. Yeah. And so when adult adoptees, when we're speaking out, I was called a victocrat. 
about a week and a half ago. And, and I had to look it up because I thought, what bullshit word is this? <laughs> and so and I'm reading it and I'm like, somebody who basically enjoys being a victim and saying, woe is me. And I was like, I don't subject myself to your nastiness because yeah. I'm a masochist. Right. I, this is happening. You're hearing adult adoptees speak out because mm-hmm. one, we have voices, we have yep. brains, we have a right to speak about mm-hmm. what we have experienced and about the injustices. Mm-hmm. And for you to tell us that that's just our lens, right? Absolutely, mother. It absolutely. Is, we're the only ones who have that have lens. That lens. And we're yeah. speaking because we're seeing what's happening mm-hmm. and we don't want it to, we know, don't want other people to have to do this. Yeah. Cause there's so much, you know, yeah. I don't know in 1980, your mother was so young, mm-hmm. but I'm the product of a forced adoption. Mm-hmm. I'm from the baby scoop era. Right. If anybody's paying attention, the baby scoop era was a nightmare for women and women's reproductive rights. And I think socially and culturally, it was harmful. Yes. Uh, Not just to us, but in the greater- Across the board. Yeah. To the sociology of families, not just domestically, but globally. I mean, there are so many problems to unpack about the baby scoop era and how we- have not recovered from it clearly given some of the language out of the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I think that we stand on the precipice of profound change and profoundly damaging change in my, in my opinion. Um, and the only people who can really authentically speak about the long-term effects of adoption are us yeah you know adopters can talk about it they often frame it as you know my child solved infertility for us and you know putting your kid to work from the day they come home from the adoption agency is not really a good way to proceed and that's what that mentality is and I think you know birth parents can talk about it from the forced adoption perspective or from the not forced adoption perspective where they would have loved to have had an open relationship and they were denied that you know we we know that open adoptions are not enforceable in most states and that many adoptions that start out as open end up being closed um but we're the ones who to use the Supreme Court's language, are traded. Yeah. And we're seeing, you know, with, with the people in Texas who are suing to have the ICWA overturned, mm-hmm. you know, the Indian Child Welfare Act, mm-hmm. they're trying to have that invalidated because they feel entitled to remove indigenous children from their families right. because they think they would be better suited to 
I mean, the, the sense of entitlement, the outright like colonization of people. White supremacy is a hell of a drug, man. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, you, you're seeing like the exploitation of, you know, poor people in crisis mm-hmm. or, you know, there's the infertility fix. There's the God put it this on our heart to the, do. The, the boom in baby boxes. Yeah, it's just children are not blank i mean blank slates it's it's such a it almost is so cliche at this point to say it but we're not like little i tell people we're not legos you didn't lose a piece to your set and you're substituting it with okay like the original instructions call for this to be a white two bump lego and I can't find it. I lost it. So I've got, here's a brown one that's just laying around, not doing anything. I'll just stick it in this right. little space and that'll be fine. Or even another white Lego or a pink mm-hmm. Lego or a yellow. It doesn't, we're not Lego. We're not right. just interchangeable. No. And it's, Yes, there will always be instances where guardianship of a minor will be necessary to safeguard that child, especially Mm -hmm. with the proliferation of drug addiction, Mm -hmm. where, where people cannot access the services they need or they're unable to recover and they can't provide Mm -hmm. a safe, stable home. But let's face it, most child protective agencies don't even look to see if there's extended family able to care for a child they Mm -hmm. when they declare a child as adoptable who's in the system they've often not even talked to the child's grandparents or aunts they've not done due diligence yeah they just have a list of people who've been waiting to adopt and they're willing to take this aged okay. child or this child with these needs or right. so they can do their savior thing or because they've mm-hmm. been denied in other agencies. Jeez. My parents mm-hmm. were denied in the United States. So they adopted overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things that just like the laws around adoptee access to documents, you have to search you have to really do the research to know what the actual situation is Mm -hmm. so absolutely i have really enjoyed talking with you i can do so all day (laughs) but we are kind of getting to that point where we should wrap up if there is some Thing that before we go, you really want people to understand either about what it was like for you to go through your process or what you think other would help other people or just something you're seeing that you really want to speak to at this moment. Mm. So we mentioned this the other day, and I think it's, it's worthy of being included here, perhaps. Um, Growing up, the phrase that I remember hearing the most was that your mother loved you so much, she gave you 
to us. And that phrase is something I see repeated over and over and over again. And I think it's something that we're going to see more of, you know, as we navigate whatever this next chapter is in, in women's reproductive health in the United States. This idea that the height of a mother's love is abandonment, because that's what that phrase means. Your mother loved you so much, she gave you to an agency, or she gave you to us, or she she relinquished you. And I I want kept people to understand how profoundly life-altering that is to hear from a very young age for an adopted person. If the height of a mother's love is abandonment, how does that child then hear every time that they're told that you love them? How does that teenager hear their first romantic partner? How does that married person hear their spouse? How do they use that phrase with their own children? Like, what does love mean when, when it equals abandonment? And how does that affect our ability to form lasting relationships and even to form friendships, right? Um, the, the very real foundational and profound fear of abandonment pokes out in all sorts of different ways and adoptees as children and adopted adults. It, it, it really comes out in weird spaces. Um, if we are indeed on the precipice of a new version of the baby scoop era, um, we're going to be creating some, some folks who have trouble with human relationships and, and human interaction. And that's not a good thing for a society, right? And I, I would just caution kept folks um, who may use that phrase um, to think it through. And then, you know, for adoptees who may be listening to this, who may just be poking their heads out of the fog and may just be trying to understand what adopted existence means, um, question that when you hear it. Um, question it for yourself and sort of suss out what it means for you. Um, we, we don't have, and it's hard for me to say this, right? It's because it's something that's taken me a long time to unpack too. We don't have to believe that the height of love or friendship is abandonment. We don't have to think that. We can do better. That's it. I'm sorry. Please do not apologize. <laughs> There's that adoptee thing. It's like, oh, oh yeah. I gotta upset somebody. Oh. I do it all the time. <laughs> I'm a pleaser. Well, you know, and that's the, uh, we need to stop apologizing for our existence. Oh, yeah. You know, and we need At to. 42, I should be over it, but I'm not. So, like you said, it pokes out in weird places. It's, it does. It's like, we gotta be, oh, I'm gonna start doing that thing where I imitate your accent i'm gonna stop <laughs> everybody my people are from the south okay it's, it's hard for me so no i uh so the listeners we're just gonna leave you with christy's very 
very insightful, self-aware comment in the hopes that people will listen. Absolutely. Take it to heart. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I have greatly enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much. Same, Andy. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you to all of the listeners. Yes, thank you.